July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles and watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research and I know there's so much more to the story that's never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. And so when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind the scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into 12 seasons. The episodes in season one tell the story of the first trip in 1989. Season two deals with the next expedition in 1991 and so on. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hi Rick. At the end of season five, you were talking about how the funding that you were hoping for came in a really unusual way. So as we begin season six, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I will. But before we do that, I want to talk about a change we're going to be making in the podcast. Oh, fun. Yeah, well, you know, the way we've been doing this since we started, gosh, this was months ago, was very low-tech, <laughs> very, very simple. We have an iPhone and a couple of clip-on mics, and we sit at the dining room table in Tiger headquarters, and we have our conversations. Yes. And it's fine. But it has been so successful. It, it's so great that, that people have responded the way they have. We want to give them an even better experience if we can. So we've invested, Tiger has invested in new, more sophisticated equipment. I mean, this is a quantum leap in, <laughs> in the sophistication. And because of that, there's a learning curve about learning how to use it. I'm, I'm still learning how to use the, the mixer and the sophisticated microphones. And, and so we're forth. not using it this week. And we're not using it this week because I haven't gotten there yet. You know, we're, we're, we're sitting here right now looking at booms hanging over our heads and big mics and, and a mixer that we're not using. <laughs> we're talking into the iPhone again. But by the next episode, stand by, folks. You know, it, it, should, uh, it should be better. At least I hope. So 
anyway, uh, let's uh, let let's talk about what happened. You know, the, the last time we were talking about the NICU four preliminary expedition that was conducted in secret because we had this cruciform object that we hoped was a Lockheed or Electra in the bushes that showed up in old aerial photographs. But when we got there, there was no airplane in the bushes, of course. And there was also no debris back in the beachfront vegetation, the scavola, even though we hacked at the underbrush for weeks looking for it. We, mm. we hoped stuff may have washed up in there, but it didn't. And there was a, another grave that we excavated, and it turned out to be the grave of a toddler. But while we were at the island, we got a satellite phone call from our other team that was in Fiji looking for the bones that had been sent there in 1940-41. They hadn't found the bones, but they did find a woman who had been the daughter of the island carpenter. Her name was Emily Sikuli. She was now living in Fiji. She had not seen the bones that her father put in the box that he built, but she had been under the impression that those bones were found under the airplane. And we hadn't said anything to her about an airplane, that we were looking for an airplane. She said, oh yes, there was an airplane. There was airplane wreckage out on the edge of the reef, up uh, north of that shipwreck. And my father pointed pointed it out to me one day when I was out uh, with him, he was looking for wood to cut. And he pointed out this rusty old wreckage out on the edge of the reef and said it was the wreckage of an airplane that the fishermen had, had come across. Well, shoot, you know, now we had a, a witness to airplane wreckage on, on the edge of the reef. And she marked the map where she said it had been. So that was that was a big step forward. And really the, the only positive thing that came out of that whole expedition. Now we needed to, to move forward with, uh, with the NICU-4 trip. What we wanted to do when we went back to the island was do a detailed search of the place on the southeast end of the island where we had looked for and ultimately found a tank that had been reported by a Coast Guard veteran and which we had hoped would be an Electra fuel tank, but turned out to be just a, a water tank of a type that we had seen in the, in the, in the native village. Ah. And we had dismissed that site as being unimportant. Uh, it didn't turn out to be what we hoped it would be, so yeah, no big deal. And we just kind of written it off. We called it the the seven site because there was a natural bare coral feature where no vegetation grew that was in the shape of a numeral seven and and showed up in aerial photographs. So okay, it's an easy way to identify it. It's just the the seven site. The aerial photographs were the ones from the forties. Right. Yeah, well, we had, we had several aerial photographs. There was actually one aerial photograph that was taken by the Navy during the search for Earhart in 1937. Ah, and it was there then? And the seven is visible in that ah. photo. And then we had photos that were taken by uh, a New Zealand survey. It was actually a, a British aircraft launched 
from HMS Leander. It was a cruiser. It was a little supermarine walrus, it was called. It was an amphibian. It was launched from the cruiser. And they did a series of aerial photographs over the island in 1938. Oh, is that before they colonized it? In, yes, in it, it, for that? The, the flight took place on December 1st, 1938. Wow. And the first Gilberty's work party came to start clearing land for a village just a few days later on December 20th. Really? And, and it's great to have a whole series of photographs of the island before it was there was ever any human activity there. So, yeah, the seven shows up there. So over what period of time in the photographs could you still see the seven? Well, the seven shows up in the 1937 photo. It shows up in the 1938 photos. It shows up in every aerial photo that we have of the island, including later, much later, the satellite photos. Really? It, it eventually slowly went away, I want to say, not until about 2015. Really? Yeah, I mean, it was very persistent. I wonder why. Why, why now? Yes, and, yeah. and I wonder why it lasted clear so long when the all around it was so dense in the foliage. Just a function of rainfall and bare coral that doesn't support growth. Uh -huh. But what has changed is climate. This is a oh, this right. is one more impact of climate change mm -hmm. that we we see many um, effects on the island and that's one of them. Wow! Because there's been more rain now, mm. and there's been enough so that rain will even grow in that seven. And now you look at the current aerial or satellite photos, can't see the seven. Wow! I I know where it was. I can see tiny signs of right. it, but. It's, right. it's gone. Interesting. And, and it, what is also, of course, gone is the extensive clearing that we did by hand. I know. I wondered about after, that. Yeah, about three different expeditions, we just cleared and cleared. But, you know, that's just stuff just bounces back. Yeah. When we dismissed that seven site as possibly being where the, the bones were found, because at, at, at the time we investigated that site in 1996, the finding of the bones was still just a rumor. We didn't know that right. it had really happened. It was just a story. But it, it was 96. In 97, we find the documentation. Right, when you went that, to Yeah, went to the bones really were find, found. And then in 98, when we got the full file from the British archives, we had a, a description of where the site was, and it fit the site. Uh, and we got thinking, okay, so you've got a big water tank there. We know that Gallagher, the colonial officer, was ordered to make a thorough search of the site. And we know from experience that if you're gonna spend any time down there working, you need water. And maybe the tank was to provide water for the search. Yes, interesting. So maybe we need to take another look at that site and see maybe there's more there than we realize. So we want to go back to that site and really, really clear it more and dig around and see what we can find. Archaeological excavation. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what's needed. It's going to be a big job because we know it's all grown over with this horrible scabola stuff. But that's what you got to do.
And then we had a couple more graves that we had identified from apparent headstones up on the other end of the island, the northwest end of the island, that were away from the abandoned village. Didn't seem like they were part of the usual burial plots. So there were usual burial plots yeah, yeah. near the village? Down in the village, people buried their relatives on their own land. Oh. Well, you know, people in this country do that, too, yeah. sometimes. Farms yes, but do it. were they little? The, were they what? The plots of land were little? I mean, it was a village, Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, they were, oh. they were little strips of land that were assigned to different people. And that, that was the big deal for the the settlers, that, that if you worked hard and took care good care of your land, you actually got it assigned to you. Oh. You had your own land. Huh which was um, very important in Gilberty's uh, culture. Yes. I very important. Then we also wanted to do an underwater search of a ledge, underwater ledge off the western edge of the reef that was would seem to be a good place that would catch debris that went over the reef edge. So we, we wondered if there might be airplane wreckage there. Right. So we were going to need a dive team and a boat that could support a dive team. Right. But fortunately, the boat that we used in, in 97 and again in 99, Naya, out of Fiji, was set up as a liveaboard scuba dive boat. Yeah, they're, perfect, they're perfect for that. And by now, we knew the owners and the crew. It was like family. Yeah. So Naya was the ship we'd want. We also wanted to do an underwater search of the lagoon bottom inside the main passage because now we had uh, indications that wreckage may have washed through the passage into the lagoon and might end up in a big sandy delta that's just inside the, the, the mouth of the passage or on the lagoon bottom just inside that. So we wanted to put divers down there. Well, okay. This whole thing was going to cost, as best we could estimate, around $300,000. Hmm. And as usual, we had no idea where the money was going to come from. Hmm. But by September of 2000, we had set dates. We're going to do this a year from then, September of 2001. We paid a deposit on Naya without knowing where the rest of the money was going to come from, but we had to reserved Naya for that time. Right. We selected a team of 12 people, veterans. We had learned how to select that expedition <laughs> teams by then. Yes. We figured to have 12 to 14 days on the island. Yeah, that would be enough to mm -hmm. do what we wanted to do, we hoped. We did want to minimize our time at sea because our trips back and forth to Fiji had proved to be tiring, to say the least. Rigorous. People got <laughs> yeah. sick, people got hurt from just the the rough seas. You know, Naya's right. 120 feet, and she can, some of those trips just she can lay so right tense. over 45 degrees. Well, how could you do that? I mean, you can't make it shorter, can you? Well, there's one place that's closer, that's a real place. Can you get there? Like, you can fly into it? Yep, American Samoa, Pango Pango. It's about two days closer to Nicomaroro than Fiji. So we'd be talking three, three and a half days at sea. Much, uh, much better. Yeah. We'd have Naya deadhead from Fiji to Pango. Meet us, meet us there. Yeah. And we could fly there via Honolulu. 
Hawaiian uh, Air ran flights oh, from, interesting. from Honolulu down to uh, to yeah, to Pango. Then we would, of course, we we had to have a Caribus representative with us to stamp our passports. And then the guy assigned to us was um, Monica Tetabo, mm-hmm. our old friend that had been with us yes. before. We arranged for Monica to fly from Tarawa to Fiji to Honolulu. <laughs> so Monica was going to meet us in Honolulu. But we still had the question of how are we going to fund this thing? Where's the money going to come from? And of course, we publicized the fact that we need money, hoping some well somebody ma- would be interested. Nice and person would yeah. step forward. Yeah. And, well, our archaeologist had a pretty good reputation in the archaeological community, and he did little presentations and talked about what we were doing. And one of his contacts in the archaeological community had contacts with a guy in New Mexico who also was interested in archaeological projects. His name was Mike Kammerer. Hmm. Now, Mike was a guy who had made a whole lot of money in television by bundling advertising time and selling it. It was kind of a new thing. I'm not real clear on how it all worked, but I know it made him... It worked well for him. (laughs) It made him filthy rich. He contacted our archaeologist and Kammerer said he was interested in sponsoring or contributing. Well, our archaeologist said, you need to talk to Rick. And he passed him off to me. Well, I called Kammerer, and it turned out that he was not interested in sponsorship. What he wanted to do was acquire the commercial exploitation rights to the expedition. Really? Yeah. Did, he, did you even have them? I mean, is that, well, was that an Well, they exist. <laughs> the rights exist. So we, previously, Tiger... Well, well, previously we had sold exclusive media coverage rights. Right, when people okay, sell photographers. A network can come along and yeah. shoot the thing, and only that, of course, it's easy to be exclusive on Nicomarora. Yes, <laughs> true. <laughs> Nobody else is going to be there to compete with you. But Camera, having reviewed our evidence, was convinced that we were going to go there and find the Earhart airplane. Ah. And that that was going to be, just that fact, was going to be worth a lot of money. He was going to shoot video of the whole thing, and he was going to be able to exploit that. Did you say yes? Well, we said it's an interesting idea. Let's <laughs> let's talk about this. Hmm. Now, this is happening in late September of, of 2000. Right, a year ahead. In October, the 9th to be exact, Pat and I met Mike Kammerer at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. <laughs> he shows up. And a big cowboy hat and cowboy boots. Where is he? <clears throat> well, he's he's from New Mexico. Oh, right, you said that. But he's 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 a big Western cowboy. He he actually had a, a company called uh, the Code of the West Foundation, oh. and it's all about the uh, values and ethics of the West. Okay, <laughs> oh. like. Gun fights and well, uh, yeah, it's it's you know, the <laughs> the Wild West ethic. You know, he was really into that. Hmm. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so we we sit down in a hotel room with him <clears throat> for the whole day, and we hammer out a deal. He's going to put up three hundred thousand dollars. 
and we're going to use that to do our expedition. Right. We get, we still have complete control of the expedition. He doesn't have control over any of the research or the expedition itself, but he gets to, to film it and then use that film and use whatever we find to make TV shows or whatever he wants to do with it, to, to make money with it. And of course, he's hoping to make millions of dollars out of right. this. And the deal was that once he got his $300,000 back, Tiger would get a percentage of the net profits according to a schedule, you know, 3 million to 6 million, we get this percentage, 6 million oh, to huh. 10 million, and up from there. I mean, it's wow. pie in the sky, but whatever. It's great. Well, that was his, that's what he did. That's, <clears throat> that's right. That's, so he's had some success. Yeah, I mean, doing that's it. that's how he operated. Huh. He was a real wheeler dealer, man. He's, <laughs> A little bit crazy, but uh, his money was good. And he agreed to the things that were really important to us. One of which was having control of the expedition and the science and the research. Sure. He couldn't touch that. We also said that any product endorsements, and oh, and he had plans for all kinds of product endorsements. Uh. And we were, we were going to split that one 50-50 with Tiger. Hmm. But we said... There's going to be no tobacco endorsements, no booze, no alcohol of any kind, no gambling, and no firearms. Hmm. That's, we're not going to do any product endorsements in any of those categories. And he agreed to that. Okay. That makes sense. And we concluded that agreement right then. I mean, he, we typed it up, and we signed it, and we had it notarized, and... We had a check for $300,000. Wow. Bang! Just like that. Wow. Yeah. So we get home, we're feeling pretty good about this. Really? You know, now we can really move forward. We can make our payments to Naya. We can get our equipment in, in order for our... And the phone rings. And it's Mike. Okay. It's Mike. First thing we need to do is get you and Pat moved out to California. What? That's what I said. <laughs> what are you talking about? He says, no, no, you need to be in L.A. That's where it's happening because we're going to do these TV shows and we're going to... I said, Mike, I hate L.A. There is no way I'm going to go to L.A. We're going to move to L.A.? You're out of your mind. Oh, okay. Well, I had some other ideas. Okay. What are your ideas, Mike? Okay, so we're going to be out there on that island. Yeah, and you're going to be hacking away and doing your thing. And you're going to do your thing the way you want to do it. But I want to... I want to be there with a film crew and film an episode of Survivor oh, at the same time you're doing that. I said, Mike, do you have any idea what you're talking about? Oh my Just gosh. Just logistically putting a television yes, crew to film. From an insurance standpoint. Reality. All those people out there. And you, you need a, your separate boat. And I don't think it's a good look for us, Mike. <laughs> He said, no, 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 it'll be fine. You should send him to the next island over where all the guano was. Yeah, well, he, <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he looked into that, and uh, after a while, he says, you know, maybe, maybe that's not going to work. Okay, <laughs> we'll do something else. Um, He's got a great imagination. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, how about we, uh, I, I fly in in a flying boat, and we land in the lagoon. And I'll have a, a model with us, and she'll be there on the island, mm -hmm. and we'll 
film a thing with, with her on the Oh my. I said, Mike, where are you going to get a flying boat that can fly from wherever to Nicomoraro? He says, well, what, what kind of flying boat would do it? I said, that's the problem. There just aren't any flying boats readily available anyway that can fly from the closest real place, Samoa, 600 nautical miles to Nicomoraro and return unrefueled. Right. <laughs> and you're not going to be able to refuel at Nicomoraro even if you position fuel there because you can't get the flying boat up close to shore because the the, the shorelines are way too shallow. Oh, There's just no way to do this. <laughs> oh no, we'll we'll figure it out. And so he, he gets back with me a couple of weeks later. He says, I got a PBY. He got one? He says, I... And when did they manufacture those? Oh, PBYs were manufactured from 1935 on, up through the end of World War, almost the end of World War II. There are so, some PBYs, <laughs> a very few PBYs around, and he found one that was oh, for gosh. sale. Somebody sold him a PBY. It was in California someplace. Wow. And he says, uh, yeah. Uh, I, it was it flyable? Needs a little work. Oh, no. But uh, I'm, I'm going to have it completely refurbished, and it'll, it'll be great. I said, oh, wonderful. Okay. I wonder when it flew last. I don't know. But as it turned out, of course, he got into it, and this thing was a complete wreck. Oh. And it was going to cost an ungodly amount of money <laughs> to put this thing in anything like airworthy condition. Wow. So he abandoned that idea, too. But mm. he wasn't done. He said, no, we, we need to get me and our model onto the island ahead of you guys to secure the site. <laughs> oh, well, how are you going to do that, Mike? We're going to parachute in. I can get a oh. plane to fly over and we're going to... Uh, yeah, I, I do skydiving, so we're going to parachute in. So, oh, this, this is just <laughs> crazy. He has a model in mind who's agreeable to I, all this. He probably did. Yeah. And I probably knew at the time, but by this time I was just, what the heck are we gotten ourselves into here? As it turned out, none of this happened. <laughs> we went ahead and went forward with our expedition. Mm -hmm. Did he go? No, no, he didn't go. At all? He didn't go at all. Oh, wow. In what way was he satisfied? Like, did, did he, he send people? He wasn't. He just none of his Did ideas. Did he arrive at the fact that he couldn't go? Or? Yeah, yeah. He oh, he he finally acknowledged that. Look, this is a whole lot harder than I thought it was, <laughs> which is what I end up telling everybody that oh. gets in, interested in this hmm. thing. It's a whole lot harder than you think it is. <laughs> so, but he he acknowledged that when it was all over, um, and this was a probably a year later. When it was all over. There was an article in the Outside magazine about him uh -huh. and what a character he was. And this was one part of what they wrote about. And they called me on the phone. And the guy who wrote the article said, well, you worked with Mike Cameron. I said, yeah, I sure did. And how would you describe Mike? And I said, well, the phrase that comes to mind is loose cannon on a rolling deck. Oh, my. <laughs> and he actually did he, used... I was going to say, did was he alive still? Yeah. <laughs> and he used... Yeah, oh, and he gosh. used... The guy used that in the article. And that I guy, mean, it's a great line, but was he mad? Yeah, I got a phone call from Mike. I bet you <laughs> he did. He was pretty upset. 
But oh, that's you know, not how he wanted. His th- that was portrayed. really not the way he wanted to be represented. <laughs> but I mean, that's and by that time, you know, I didn't care what my camera he cashed stopped. his check. With the, he, a, and we had lived up finished. to our we had lived up to our end of the deal, and I never wanted to see my camera again. <laughs> and he, oh, he did something else. He did in this whole run up to the expedition. He said, okay, after you get out there and find the airplane and find Amelia's bones and her DNA, um, we're going to make this fantastic film, but we're going to need a Lockheed, a flying Lockheed Electra for this film. And uh, it needs to be just like Amelia Earhart's. And there's only one of those in existence. It's the one that Linda Finch flew around the world to recreate Earhart's flight in 1997. Uh. And that airplane was for sale. Oh. And Mike bought it. He did? He bought another he, airplane? He bought the electric. Oh he, he bought that airplane and had it ferried to Santa Fe, New Mexico and stuck it in a hangar. Oh. And, okay, I've got it there when, when we make our big film. Okay, good. Well, wow. ultimately, of course, it never got used in any film. It never left that hangar. Mike died a few years later, and his daughter sold the airplane to the Museum of Flight in Seattle. Oh, good. And that's where it is Great. today. Great. That's how it got there. Yeah. But, I mean, Well, it was I'm kind just... of glad he's not still around to comment about this. <laughs> so... <laughs> right. <laughs> I think we're safe. <laughs> I will probably say. Oh, my. That's okay. all crazy. All this craziness is going on. And we're trying to put together this expedition and get on with our work. And then something else comes up right about that time in the fall of 2000. I get a phone call from a guy from a little farming community in Illinois, ah. Hopeston, Illinois. And he says, I've, I've been reading about your work and your theory. And there's a woman who lives near me. We're neighbors, and I know her. We've been friends for a long time. Her name is Betty Brown. And uh, she says that she knows what happened to Amelia Earhart because she heard Amelia Earhart calling for help on the radio when she was a 15-year-old girl living in St. Petersburg, Florida. Wow. And she has a notebook she kept by her radio and she jotted down what she heard Amelia saying and she's still got that notebook. Wow. And I said, whoa. Okay, we had, we had heard from other people, many of them women, older women, who had claimed to have heard Amelia Earhart calling for help on their home radios. I mean, there were reports at the time. Oh, yeah. All over. Yeah, right? there, there were many reports that showed up in the newspapers and then other people that didn't show up in the newspaper had contacted us and and said, yeah, I I heard that too. And we investigated them and and they were credible. They they weren't looking for attention or anything, but it was just had to take their word for, for what they said had happened. But they all reported the same way of hearing these distress calls. 
they they weren't searching for Amelia Earhart on their radios. They they weren't uh, tuning in her frequency. Right. <clears throat> they were they were just cruising the dial on their short wave sets, as many people and and many housewives did back in the '30s. After the kids are in bed and things have calmed down, the housework's done. Just as a relaxing thing, they would search for foreign stations, foreign music. It was a very—it's like cruising the internet. Sure, now. sure. So, did anybody back? Did the public know what bands? Uh, well, she was her her primary frequencies had been published. Okay. In the, the and they were they were high frequencies, thirty-one oh five and sixty-two ten kilocycles. They were mm -hmm. called in those days. But her radio also put out signals on harmonics of those frequencies. Now, a harmonic is a multiple of the primary frequency, right. and it's much higher. It could be two, three, four, five times mm -hmm. the, the frequency of the primary. They, she wasn't intending to put those out, but radios That's at that the time... That's it worked. Well, the radios at that time were not shielded from putting out harmonics, like the way they are today. That oh. wouldn't happen today. But those radios weren't shielded, and so she's just putting out these very high frequency signals. Now the thing about those high harmonic frequencies is they're not so reliable, but when they do, they go up to the ionosphere and they bounce off the D layer, it's called, and they come down. And if you happen to be where the reception is good on those, it can come through crystal clear the, on the, from the other side of the world. Wow. The difference here with Betty Brown is that she had documentation. She had a notebook she made notes in at the time, and she still had that notebook. Wow, that's so cool. And I, I called her on the phone. Her story was that, that she had been just cruising the dial of her radio one afternoon, the way she often did, and stumbled upon Amelia Earhart calling for help. And, and she was astonished at this. Wow. Started, she, she grabbed this little notebook that she kept by the radio. She jotted down the lyrics of her favorite song. She made little sketches of glamorous women and handsome men. And it was just a, she's 15 years old. 15 year old's notebook. Yeah, at the, her name at that time was Betty Clank. And she makes these notations of the phrases she can make out. The signal fades in and out, as they do. Mm -hmm. But if it faded out, she'd wait. She'd flip to another page and make some more sketches. And, and then come back in, and she'd go back to the notes, and she would write down some more. And this goes on for an hour and three quarters. One night. One, one, just, afternoon. Well, it's one afternoon, her, okay. her time. And she, she has the foresight to make notations at the top of the page. Now, this started at such and such a time and faded out at such and such a time. Wow. Oh, I came back in at this time. And then, so we, we've got all that yeah. and, and, and the notebook. Well, she was really excited about this. Her father came home from work and she said, Dad, you've got to hear this. I'm hearing Amelia Earhart calling for help. And he came over and listened. He said, my God, you're right. That really does sound. Now, her father worked for the St. Petersburg, Florida uh, electrical company, oh, uh, uh -huh. power company. And so he could get real deals on um, fancy radios. As, oh, uh, and antennas. <laughs> yeah. And he had bought the family a Zenith Stratosphere, I mean, top of the line radio. 
and he had rigged up a special fancy antenna uh, from the porch roof over to a power pole and so on. Mm -hmm. And so they were getting great stuff on their radio. But he hears this, he says, I wonder if my neighbor's getting this too. Because one thought he had is, well, what if this is like just a radio play or something? If it, uh, if it is, my neighbor will be getting it too, because he doesn't have a rig like ours. Oh, right. So he ran next door. Now the neighbor wasn't hearing anything like this. They tried to bring it up on his set, and he said they got nothing. But Betty was, was definitely getting it. Wow. And so when it finally stopped long enough so they were sure, no, it, it's over now, he took that notebook and he went down to the Coast Guard station in St. Pete and he said, you got to listen to me. My daughter has been hearing Amelia Earhart calling for help and she's got these notes and there are uh, things in here that, that might be indications of where she is and you got to get this information out. And the response he got from the Coast Guard was, no, look, other people are hearing calls like this. We're getting these reports. We're on top of it. Don't worry about it. We've got it covered. Now, how many days is this after she disappeared? As best we can connect what she wrote with what we know happened otherwise. This happened on Monday the 5th. Now, Earhart disappears on Friday the 2nd of July. Okay. So this is Saturday the 3rd, Sunday the 4th, 4th of July, yeah. and then Monday the 5th. Hmm. It never got into the newspapers. It never, the, they, that was it? It stopped that, with that, the Coast Guard stopped. guy she saying, could, don't worry about it? He couldn't get anybody to pay attention to this. Wow. And it, it drove Betty nuts. Later, during World War II, she got a job in Washington, D.C. as a secretary. And she tried to connect with people in the Navy Department oh. about it. Couldn't get anybody to pay attention to her. Then afterward, years later, in the 1960s, she read, oh, there's this guy, uh, Fred Gurner, who has written a best-selling book about the search for Amelia Earhart, how she was captured by the Japanese. And, and I know that's not right, because I know what happened to her. Wow. She was, she was on some island. And, and she, I've got all the, and so she wrote to Fred Gurner. Well, she actually got in touch with her neighbor, who, uh, the, uh, the, the guy that also, neighbor that called the you? same guy that called oh, up, they got in touch with him and he wrote to Gurner. He said, no, you've got to pay attention to what Betty says. Wow. And Gurner said, mm, I don't think so. You know, I've looked at this and I just can't connect it with anything that I, makes any sense. So by, by 2000, Betty's retired. Her, um, her husband, a brownie, uh, has Alzheimer's, so she's caring for him. Yeah. And as far as the whole notebook and Amelia Earhart thing, she's so disgusted. She doesn't oh, want to talk to anybody about it. Sure. But the neighbor knows, and he contacted us. He says, I don't know if she'll even talk to you. Wow. But I called her, and she did tell us this story. And I said, well, would you sit down with me and my wife if we came to Hopeston and talked about your notebook? She says, yeah, you, you seem like a nice guy. I'd, I'd talk to you. So Pat and I traveled to Hopeston, Illinois, and we sat down with Betty in her living room, and she went through her notebook page by page, entry by entry, with her best recollections of the backstory about now here this was Amelia talking and she was doing this oh. and the notebook is is really interesting because there are two people 
There's a person who says she's Amelia Earhart, a yeah. woman. And there's a man who is never identified. Huh. Uh, and Betty didn't know does she, who. Does he talk? And he talks. He interrupts. He grabs the mic. He says nonsensical things. Oh. He's, he's acting very irrationally. And Betty had the impression that he had sustained some kind of head injury oh. and was kind of out of his head. They never said where they were, but they were in a confined space and it was very hot. And he, he needed air. He always said, I have air. And he was, they were concerned about rising water. And they were both obviously terrified, desperate. And Amelia is trying to get out useful information. At one point, apparently she sent latitude, longitude information. Had Betty written that down? She had written down what she thought she heard. Okay. And it really doesn't make any sense. Uh -huh. A 15-year-old girl doesn't really have a good handle oh, on, on what it that is long. And, yeah. and, you know, yeah. Really not anything we've ever been able to decipher. But she, she tried. But there are other things as Betty went through this thing. We're sitting there talking. And we're videotaping this whole thing. Oh, oh cool. And we, we've got that all on videotape. There, there were things about it. So, okay, this is, this is not a radio play because there is no narrator, there's no music, there are no commercials. No, there's, there's just these two people, a woman who says she's A.E. and a man who is, whose name is never mentioned. Betty didn't know who he was. She didn't know enough about Amelia Earhart. Well, she knew about Amelia Earhart. She'd seen Amelia oh, sure. yeah. in the newsreels and, and on the radio interviews. So she, and she recognized Amelia's voice, but she didn't know Noonan's, she didn't know who the navigator was. She didn't know Fred Noonan's name, anything like that. Right. Just, this was just a man. Hmm. Desperate, confused, in places nonsensical. Hmm. The whole thing reads like the transcript of a modern 911 call. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> But there were a couple of things in it that really struck me. One was that at, at one point, Amelia apparently had some kind of injury, possibly her ankle. Betty wrote down uncle, and oh. it doesn't make any sense. Uh -huh. But right after that, Amelia, she has Amelia saying, oh, ouch, gosh darn it, crying now. Oh. And then Betty told us, she said, well, I wrote, gosh darn it, because I was 15 years old, but that's not what Amelia said. <laughs> I said, well, what did Amelia say? And she kind of looked around and said, goddamn son of a bitch is what she said. <laughs> oh. Well, okay, not many people, and certainly not Betty Clank, knew that Amelia Earhart could swear like a sailor. <laughs> I mean, that was... The people who knew her knew that when she was upset, she could turn the air blue. So that was interesting. Yes. Yeah, this, uh, um, and this sort of thing is what we call occult information. It has nothing to do with the supernatural. It's information that this person couldn't possibly know. Right. But she has anyway. And was it just that day, that one day that she heard? Yeah, yeah. She listened for her on other days, but never this connected. This the only day she did. Huh. Now, oh. Did it make sense to you that they were confined in a small area? <laughs> Does that... Yeah, 
Yeah, because the only way this could have happened would be if Earhart and Noonan were both in the cockpit of the Electra right. out on the reef. And the cockpit of that Electra, this would be, if it's afternoon in St. Pete, it's uh, late, late afternoon in St. Pete. It's late morning oh. in, in, the, in the South Central wow. Pacific. And in that cockpit plane. is going to be an oven. Wow. 120 degrees, if not more. Wow. And it all made perfect sense that uh, they would be reacting the way they're reacting. But there were other things that were in the notebook that I found more than interesting. At one point, Betty recorded Amelia as saying, George, get the suitcase in my closet, California. Well, if you're stuck on a reef hoping to be rescued, what sense does it make to say something like that? Now, her husband's name, right. George, is right. George Putnam. Yeah. Betty didn't know that, but yeah, George. Suitcase in my closet. Well, there was a letter that Amelia wrote in December 1934 when she was in Hawaii about to try to fly from Hawaii to California. And she wrote a letter home to her mother, who was house-sitting for her at their new home in North Hollywood, California. Oh. Toluca Lake. Amelia called these my popping off letters in, oh. in, in case I don't show up. Yeah. She said, if, if I don't show up, uh, I've taken possession of some papers in my briefcase, in the zippered compartment of my briefcase, that mean nothing to anyone but me. If, if I don't show up, burn them. Destroy them. Well, okay, now it's 1937, and it's her husband, George, who's home in California. Maybe these papers had been moved from the briefcase to a suitcase. George, get the suitcase in my closet. The one in California, not the one in New York, where we moved. They also have a home in New York. George knows about this. He knows that Amelia's got papers that she wants destroyed. So she's letting him know. Okay, you know, huh. get the uh, things aren't wow. looking good here, and I want those papers destroyed. So you see something like this in the notebook, and is it a connection to something that Betty couldn't possibly know? Mm, how do you know? Yeah. But it's fascinating. It is. And then the other thing is that in two or three places in the notebook, Betty writes NY NY, NY NY, and I, Betty, what's what's and why, and why? And at one point she had made a notation that, or something that sounds like New York. I oh. said, what, what's this mean? She says, well, and why, and why? That's New York, New York. That's, that's how I write New York City. New York City? Uh. The British freighter aground on the reef at Gardner Island, Nicomararo, is the SS Norwich City. It was still intact, yes, mostly. Yes, it hadn't, it hadn't been that long before. Well, it had been there for eight years. Still pretty much intact. She could get the name, the name from the ship, either there. from where it was written on the ship, or there were lifeboats that had washed ashore oh. that would have the name of the ship on. Mm. Amelia is trying to say something about the island she's on that will help people identify the island, because she doesn't know the name of the island. Nowhere in any of these distress calls reported by 
any of the at least nine people who heard these distress calls mm -hmm. incredibly or any of the government stations that heard intelligible signals nowhere does Amelia say the name of any island now if you know you're on Gardner Island and you want people to come get you yes <laughs> what do you say on the radio on Gardner Island right. Gardner 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 <clears throat> but she doesn't do that she's got the latitude longitude because Noonan can get that and uh, did did anybody clearly hear the that long that she said no okay. other other people who heard distress calls say they heard it and wrote it down but they had all lost their notes that they okay. made okay. so we don't know right but how could Amelia not know the name of the island they've got maps we think we know how that happened we have a copy of the map that the US Navy used during the search for Amelia in 1937 mm -hmm. and they selected a map that includes Howland Island and Baker Island and you know, the, where, where she's trying to get to right but it ends two and a half degrees south of the equator that's that's the bottom edge of that map and Gardner is four degrees oh wow and on this Navy map that was used to manage the search they've been hearing these radio distress calls some of which Pan American has taken bearings on from Honolulu and Midway and Wake and these lines are drawn on the map and they seem to be converging but below the edge of the map so what the, what the Navy does well the guys at the 14th Naval District they cut the top edge off that map turn it over and paste it along the bottom and then hand draw latitude longitude lines oh. to extend the map and then plot in the location of known islands down there including Gardner and McKeon oh. Island and these lines are crossing right mm. there by Gardner Island but which, she would not have had oh no no Amelia right. can't do that all she's got is a latitude longitude but without a map if she had that same map and it's the map the Navy chose to use to show Howland Island and stuff yeah. if Amelia has that same map she's got latitude longitude but it doesn't do her any good because she Cause has no map to plan map. it on oh, gosh. so she doesn't know she knows she's on an island maybe she thinks it's an uncharted island and in one of the distress calls not Betty but one of the others she says he, she's heard to say we're on an uncharted island small uninhabited we're on part land part water well yeah they're out on the reef yeah. in a description so this is looking really interesting yes Betty bless her heart apparently we seemed like nice people because she let us borrow her notebook oh. and we took that home with us well you're probably the first people that showed We're, a positive interest in it it sounds like people who took her seriously yeah. no, we took her very seriously but we also did our due diligence we put researchers out of this thing is this a notebook that dates from 1937 do the lyrics to the songs jotted down on other paper on, on other pages represent songs that were popular in July of 1937 oh fascinating 
No, no, you can't take that away from me. Oh, Fred gosh, Astaire. Is that that old? That's right. And she, <laughs> Betty jots down the lyrics. Uh, how about that? Yeah, you can't take that away from me. <laughs> and it's right there in the notebook. And everything about the notebook checks out. Wow. So, geez, you know, what a piece of evidence. Mm. So we're, we're getting close. We, we've concluded the notebook. We're sitting there. Betty's sitting on the couch. And uh, we're just talking now. And the video's still running. And she, she's got a copy of uh, Fred Gerner's book, The Search for Amelia Earhart. And she's just leaving through the pages. She says, yeah, I have this. And she opens to a page that shows a picture of A.E. And, and Fred. And she sits there for a minute and she tears up. Uh. And I said, what's the matter, Betty? And she says, Rick, I can still hear them. Uh. I can still hear them. They were so terrified. I, I, uh. so, you know. And Whoa. can you imagine how frustrating it must be oh. to have had that information and have no one? Yeah. So we, we go home with the notebook. We check it all out. It's all incredible. And of course, Betty's checking in with me because she's really interested in how we're making out. Uh, and, and I'm telling her, look, this is, this is looking good, Betty, because the things you told us, there's things in here that, that track that you couldn't possibly know. Right. You know, we totally believe what you're and we're acting on this. We're going to be doing an expedition next year right to that place, right to that reef, and we're hoping to find it. And she felt so good about that. And she called me. It was probably two months later. She says, Rick, I, I can't hear him anymore. Oh. And I said, oh. <laughs> Betty, Somebody that's because you don't have to carry that anymore. You don't, anymore. About it. <laughs> you don't else have is. to carry that by oh. yourself. You know, oh. we, we got it. <laughs> and, and, she, and, of course, she kept calling me oh. until, until she died. Really? You know, oh. she lived a few more years. She, Rick. This is Betty. She was like my. So you probably made like the a end grandmother. Of her life. You know, we became very close. Uh, I, I loved that woman. And and uh, Pat and I did go out to later. She was living in an assisted living place, and uh, and, and then uh, we'd come to visit her daughter, and we went out and visited the daughter, and Betty came, and we presented her with a plaque. And, that's so nice. And, got to see her again and she was not doing great by that time but she was still lucid and and really appreciated it oh i'm and, sure and it, it was to finally really, have some validation for yeah no it, it was and of course she ended up being featured in npr radio documentaries and and recreated in Discovery Channel shows, uh, got a young woman to sit by an old radio. Oh, really? She became famous <laughs> for the whole latter part of her life. How she many more was, years did she live after oh, you did this? Oh, God. Uh, I want to say about six years. Really? Yeah. yeah. But in those six years, boy, she was... She was a famous woman, <laughs> and she got off on it. That's so it, was, it was wonderful to watch. Wow. Well, did you compile her information with the other people who had heard things? And what did, we did, did that all add up? One of our senior researchers, the man is a 
certifiable genius. <laughs> Bob, Bob Brandenburg, retired Navy Lieutenant Commander, but also a <clears throat> former like NSA. He was just oh, wow. absolute genius in radio propagation, developing the, the program. So he, he a computer modeled the antenna system on our airplane, and we gathered all these radio, uh, r reported radio signals, mm -hmm. what frequencies they were heard on, where they were heard, when they were heard, by whom, what the content was, every aspect of them. And we compiled it, every one of them. There were 137 reported receptions. We collected information on all those and ran the numbers on them. We found 57 of the 137 to be credible. Ah, that meaning... They matched his... Well, that meaning we can't find an alternative explanation for how somebody in that place could hear this if it wasn't transmitted from here wow. on that frequency. That's compelling. And, 50, and of those 57, about a dozen of them are what we've categorized credible beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, wow. there's just... No, and if even one of those is actually a genuine distress call from Amelia Earhart, then she did not go down at sea. She was not captured by the Japanese. <laughs> Right. And she was on Gardner Island. Wow. So well, tell me how, um, for what period of time did those calls yeah, they, actually cover? They start at 6 p.m. local time uh -huh. on the day she disappeared. Okay. Now, she's heard what she's... 6 p.m. local time to Gardner Island yeah. or Nicomar? Well, to, to Itasca, the Coast Guard Cutter at Holland oh, Island. Okay, right. Is the half an hour difference in time. Oh, so the Coast Guard is hearing her while she's in flight. Mm -hmm. And we analyze those signals. And yeah, okay, that all checks out. But everybody agrees that by noon that day, July 2nd, local time, she's got to be out of fuel. She's got to be down someplace. Mm -hmm. And we know that she can't transmit if she's in the water. The airplane will float, but the radios will be wet. Ah. And Lockheed at the time, the airplane manufacturer, said, hey, if you're hearing radio signals from she's that airplane, not it's not in the water. She's, she's on land. Wow. Beyond that, she has to be able to recharge the battery that the radio depends upon. And in order to recharge the battery, she's got to run an engine. Huh. And in order to run an engine, the prop's got to clear the water. So she's someplace where she can run an engine. Wow. Well, something we did. These these signals go on from 6 p.m. on July 2nd. Now, she's got to be down someplace by 6 p.m. Until the wee hours of July 7th. Really? Yeah. And it's it's almost always at night. Because propagation is best at night. And also, it's at night that it's bearable to be in that airplane. Oh, because of the, the heat. So you matched the tides then? Well, what we reasoned that if these really are credible and she's got to be able to run an engine, she should run the engine before she transmits because she also uses the battery to start the engine. Oh. And, and when you transmit just on a battery without the generator going, it runs, it runs the battery down very quickly. Wow. So it makes sense to start the engine 
and then send your signals. Right. So do the credible signals match times when the water was low enough on the reef for the prop to clear so she can run an engine. Well, how do we do that? Well, in order to do that, we've got to survey that reef, measure how high that the coral lot is on that reef versus the sea level right. at different points of the tide. In 2000, we hadn't done that yet. Oh, that was okay. that was a later trip, and we'll talk about that when uh, we get to it. That was an adventure, I'm going to tell you, surveying <laughs> that reef. But we get ahead of ourselves here. So Betty came forward in the fall of 2000, and it was a huge thing. We've got cameras, money, and we're preparing to go, and... We're all set to, we, we come around to um, September of 2001, and we're a couple of weeks, a week or so from uh, heading for Hawaii to then go on yeah. down to Samoa. And Cameron says, well, okay, none of this other stuff worked. I've got to at least put a film crew on the boat with you. Well, you've had a year, Mike. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah, well, I thought this other stuff was going to work, but I won't. So I... I, I'm, so I'm, no parachuting model. No, I, I guess we're not going to parachute in. <laughs> so I'll, I'll round up a cameraman and a sound man. Okay. Cut to um, a guy named Mark Smith in Jersey City, New Jersey. Oh. Who was a film producer. And he gets a call from, uh, hey, I got a possible gig for you. You know, there's this expedition that's going to be going out to an island in the South Pacific. And they need a cameraman. You'll be gone about a month. And uh, we'll pay you your, your, your regular fee. You know, it's, it's good work. And we've got so-and-so. He's going to be a sound man. He'll go along with you. And um, Mark says, yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, you, you say it's going to be next month? Uh, no, it's going to be next week. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Oh my God! It's so he's scrambling around. Is that the first time you met him? Oh, I had never heard of Mark Smith. Oh my God! Mark Smith is now on our board of directors. I know, I know. What a he's what and Mark a, and I have been all over, history all over the world together. But in 2000, he's just a guy in Jersey City that got a gig. That, well, what a stroke of luck. Yeah. <laughs> that makes the all of that bizarre stuff worth it. Well. To go through with him. Bizarre is our specialty. Yeah. You know? It really seems to be. Jeez. So next time we'll talk about how the expedition actually went. <laughs> okay. And we'll do it on the new equipment. How's that? That sounds so exciting. I all can't right. wait to hear the difference. Yeah, me too. Uh, well, thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.